chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Last time we were together, we looked at the beginning of Matthew 1, where we saw the ancestry of our King. We looked at Jesus' family tree in the beginning of the chapter and saw that Jesus would come through this incredible line of people. His family tree was filled with all these great people, people uh, that, that all the Jews had in common, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he also had uh, kings in his family tree, kings like David and Solomon. But he also had great women of faith, notable names like Rahab and Ruth. But we also saw that the coming of Jesus wasn't simply confined to a, a, a family tree. It wasn't confined to just a, a, an earthly genealogy. But he, he was sent by his father. So God the Father decided to send his son to earth to go on a rescue mission to save God's people. And so God the Son willingly submitted himself to his father's plan. He willingly came to earth uh, as a result of the will of his father. So as time begins, as God creates all that we have here, as that time begins, the anticipation for the coming of the Messiah begins. The prophets foretell of his coming, and the anticipation builds more and more throughout the scriptures until finally we come to where we are this morning in the end of Matthew 1. So look down at Matthew 1, and we'll start reading in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I pray that you'll work through your word this morning in a a great way, again, to to bring Christmas into the hearts of those who are here who may not know you. Where your son descends and does his work and does his ministry and he dies on the cross and comes back from the dead. Lord, we pray that that message will be instilled in hearts this morning. Do this work through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name. Amen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament, and they're all gospel accounts. They're narratives. They're basically um, stories of, of Jesus, accounts of Jesus, things that he did during his life. And it's interesting to study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because sometimes you, you get the same story, but you get it from a little bit of a different perspective. And so when you look here at Matthew and then you go over and maybe look at the Christmas account and Luke, you, you get a couple perspectives that help give a fuller picture of what's actually going on. So in this morning's passage, in the end of Matthew 1, we're going to see Joseph's 
perspective of what happened around the time of Jesus' birth. But over in the Gospel of Luke, where Larry read this morning, we get more of Mary's perspective. So when you combine those two perspectives, obviously you get a much fuller picture of what was happening. But over in that Luke account, we see that Mary goes away and she spends time with her relative Elizabeth. And so she, she, makes, she makes the journey, she gets there, and then she sees Elizabeth, and they're thrilled to have her, obviously. In fact, so thrilled that the baby that's inside her relative Elizabeth actually jumps. And who is that baby inside of Elizabeth? John the Baptist. So, so he gets there, or Mary gets there, Elizabeth is there, she's pregnant with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist jumps for joy in the womb because of what, or because of who is in Mary's womb, Jesus. So Mary spends several months with her relatives, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And during this time, she's there, she's beginning to develop. She's beginning to show that she is pregnant. So at the point where we are in Matthew chapter 1, at the end here, she comes back from this visit with her, with her relative Elizabeth, and she's showing that she is about four months pregnant. But there's a significant issue with Mary being pregnant, isn't there? She isn't married yet. She's only engaged to this guy who we know as Joseph. So you can imagine, she goes away on this trip, and then she comes back, and what's going through Joseph's mind? How in the world are you pregnant? I'm not even married to you. He knew that he wasn't the father. So there was obviously an issue. And so you can imagine what was going through his mind. And there was probably a couple of things. We, we don't really know for sure, obviously, what was going in his mind. How, how he thought she got pregnant. But it, was obvious, it would have been one of two things. Either Mary did something immoral. Something she stepped out on him. She cheated on him. Or something immoral was done to her maybe on her trip, or it was very dangerous to travel in those days, so maybe something had happened to her on her journey. We don't know necessarily what was going through his mind, but what we do know is that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but her being pregnant out of wedlock would have certainly been a deal-breaker. In in this day and in this culture, the way marriages happened was that a father would go and he would actually pick the wife for his son. So some of you who have adult sons, it would be like you getting to handpick who your son marries. So you would imagine that sons would really want to be nice to their fathers if they're the ones picking who they're going to end up getting married to. But that's the way that it would happen. So Joseph's parents would have actually handpicked Mary. So they enter into this betrothal period, which was basically a, a real serious form of engagement, and the only way to break up this engagement, this, this betrothal period, the, the only way to break it was to get an actual divorce. So Mary comes back from Elizabeth's house. Joseph knows that this isn't his child because they hadn't consummated their marriage yet. And so what's going to happen? Look down in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now look how Joseph responds to this pregnancy. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I love what it says about Joseph there in, in, in verse 19. A lot of translations say that Joseph was righteous, or that he was just. But I think that uh, this NIV translation is a really good rendering of what that word is meaning. It's saying that he's faithful to the law. 
He's adherent to it. He was, he was careful to keep the law. In other words, he was a good Jewish man. But he wasn't just a good law-abiding citizen. He was also genuinely a good guy. The text says that he had, he had no desire to put Mary to shame. He didn't want to expose her to any kind of public disgrace. I mean, a child out of wedlock, especially in these times, severely hampered you, you the rest of your life and severely uh, hampered your, your chances of getting married. So Joseph decided to do things quietly. He knew that there was going to be a lot of issues with Mary. He knew she was going to have a hard road to toe. So he did things quietly. So what you could do in these days to get a divorce, you could do it really quietly. All he would have had to have done is get a couple witnesses. He would have brought them in. They would have discussed it. And then the witnesses would say, okay, we hear you. We understand this marriage is off. And Mary would have been released from the betrothal. So this was the quiet way to do it. The text says in verse 19 that his mind was made up to do this. But by doing it this way, he was, he was doing two things. He was accomplishing two things. First, he was able to maintain his reputation as one who is faithful to the law. He was able to keep his own character and his own personal integrity intact. And secondly, he was able to show mercy to Mary. Because in these days, he could have exposed it. He could have made a big deal about it. He could have made a big ruckus, but he chose not to do that. So at this point, anyway, Joseph has decided that it would be best to separate from Mary. But the beginning of verse 20 tells us something interesting. It tells us that he thought about this. He pondered it. It wasn't like this easy decision. He, he considered this situation. He reflected on it. He seriously considered the problem at hand. So, so after he spends this time thinking about it, and after his mind is made up to divorce, he, he goes ahead and he puts his head down to sleep. He falls asleep. And then look what happens in verse 20. It's pretty surprising. I think if any of us went to sleep and this happened, we'd be pretty alarmed. Verse 20. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So this angel comes to Joseph, and he says, Joseph, son of David. He reminds him of his royal heritage. He reminds him of that blood that runs through his veins. He tells him not to be afraid and to get married to Mary. So you can imagine the fear involved here with getting officially married to a woman who was already pregnant. By marrying her, it would have have been taken in the eyes of the public that the child was Joseph's. So he knew that the child wasn't his. But by marrying her, in the eyes of the public, it was like, oh, okay, Joseph, so it was your child. He put himself under the scrutiny. But the angel goes on to say what would have been shocking to any of us. That the child that was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. But that's not all the angel says. He says that the child is going to be a boy. And that Joseph is to name him Jesus. But the big piece that I want to focus on within this verse is why they named him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Isn't it? Is this not the mission of Christ in a nutshell? That he would come and save his people from their sins. The Jews were long awaiting their Messiah, but they weren't expecting someone to come and deliver them from their sins. They were expecting somebody to come and deliver them from the Roman oppression. 
This is one of the strands that we're going to see through the book of Matthew, where the Roman government is controlling this area of the world. And so the hope of the Jews at this point anyway, is that the Messiah is going to come and deliver us from Rome. He's going to overthrow Rome, not overthrow our sin. But this Messiah, this Jesus, would be the bearer of salvation. He would be the means of our salvation. The name Jesus in the Old Testament is from Joshua. And translated, it means Yahweh is salvation, or that the Lord is our salvation. And Jesus Christ would bring salvation, not from the tyranny of Rome, but from the tyranny of our sin. So this message is a, is a message of hope that we proclaim this time of year. This is the gospel message. Jesus Christ has been sent by God to, to earth to die on the cross in order to do something, and His name says it all, to save His people from their sins. So Jesus Christ has been sent by God to earth to die on the cross to save His people. So the purpose of the miraculous physical birth of Jesus was for the miraculous spiritual birth of His people. So if you don't know Christ, consider Him this season. On our own, we can't attain to God. We can't reach up to God on our own. We can't save ourselves. And this is the whole deal with Christmas. This is what Christmas proves. It proves that Jesus, God, had to come to earth down to us to save us because we couldn't reach up to Him. He had to come down to us. So trust Him. He came to save His people from their sins. And what a Christmas this would be if you recognized Him as your Savior. As somebody who came to bear your sins. But to quickly recap that dream. The angel comes to Joseph. He tells him, don't be afraid to get married to Mary. He tells Joseph that the the child that's conceived is by the Holy Spirit. And he tells him to name the baby Jesus. Because he'll save his people from their sins. But after this dream, Matthew records that this was to fulfill what the prophet had said hundreds of years before. Look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this, this prophecy here in, in, from Isaiah 7.14 is, is fully and finally realized in Jesus. The virgin conceived and the child that would be born would be called Emmanuel. He would be God with us. The Messiah would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, but he would also be named Emmanuel. He would literally be God with us, God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the way that he would come to earth is through a virgin conception. And this is one of those doctrines in in Christianity that is often assaulted by the world. Yet Christians throughout the centuries have firmly held to the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. You could go back to the beginning of church history and see that they clearly believed in the virgin birth. On the other side, you could spend the rest of your week reading articles and reading books as to how the virgin birth would be impossible, that it would be illogical or improbable. So this is something that we should be clear on. In fact, a couple hundred years ago, 250 years ago, whatever it is, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the U.S., wrote a letter to the second president of the U.S., John Adams. And he he wrote that the idea of a virgin birth should be thrown out altogether. This is what Thomas Jefferson said to John Adams. And the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being, as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with a fable of a generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. 
but we may hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with all the artificial scaffolding and restore to us the primitive and genuine doctrines of this most venerated reformer of human error. So notice the language of President Jefferson. He says that it's a mystical generation, that Jesus' birth that we think of it, it's a mystical generation of Jesus. It's a fable. It's artificial scaffolding. And so this is said by one of the founding fathers of our country. Jefferson's prophecy that the virgin conception of Jesus would become as meaningless as a fable is partly true. Many have jumped onto the idea that the virgin conception is impossible, but this prophecy of Jefferson will never fully and finally be realized. It will, it will never come to pass. Jefferson's perception of a dawn of reason and freedom of thought has not come, nor has the artificial scaffolding of this Christian doctrine come crumbling down. And that's because, very simply, God won't let it. And those who are optimistic about the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit and the lives of believers, as those who know that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, as those who know that Jesus will be with us until the end of the age, we hold the teaching of Scripture to be true. We must hold the teaching that Jesus was born of a virgin to be true, whether it's easy to reconcile in our minds or not. People like Jefferson throw away the, the virgin conception because they can't, they can't manage it in their minds. They can't, they can't figure it out. They can't make sense of it. But that begs a question. If, if we could make sense of the way that God worked, if we could fully grasp the ins and outs of a virgin conception, if we could fully understand God, would that not make us equal with God? So we may not fully understand how all this happened, but it happened nonetheless. Jesus was born of a virgin, and this is stated several places in Scripture. In verse 23, Matthew quotes the prophecy of Isaiah that says that it would be conceived of a virgin, and then he strongly implies it in verse 25. But then over in Luke's account, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke states very clearly that Mary was a virgin in Luke chapter 1, 34. So although we can't fully explain the idea of a virgin conception, and although we may never be able to satisfy unbelievers with our answers, we can certainly see and, and explain things from this text. So there's a few things that I do want to know about the virgin conception to help us at least understand it a little more fully. First, we know what the text tells us. Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. So this wasn't a usual or, or normal birth. It, it wasn't through a physical relationship. Second, we know from the text that the conception was by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't biological through Joseph. It was miraculous by the Holy Spirit. But again, this wasn't through a physical relationship. This isn't like Greek mythology where the gods descend to earth and have relations with human women and then produce demigods. Jesus wasn't a demigod. So the simple biblical answer to the question of how a virgin could conceive is this. Jesus was made of an ordinary female egg that was fertilized miraculously by the Holy Spirit, thus beginning the development of Jesus' humanity, where he literally took on flesh. So Jesus was made of Mary's stuff. All the natural happenings that happened inside the womb of a mother within, between a child and the mom happened between Mary and Joseph. This was a, a natural, his humanity was natural. His, his coming into existence as a human was like ours. So since Jesus was made of his mother's egg that was fertilized by the Spirit, he would have carried the traits of his mother's side of the family. He would have looked like his mother. He would 
been made of her stuff, her, her in a very real way. So if you ever run into somebody who scoffs at the idea of a virgin birth, take heart. The faith that you have been given is a miraculous faith given to you by God to believe the miraculous things within the word. And one of the things that we have to remember when we think of all the things that are going on within this passage of a virgin conception and angels and revelatory dreams is that this is not uncommon throughout scripture. One of the things that we have to notice and one of the things that we noticed in our community group the other night is that miraculous births go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible with Abraham and Sarah. They're almost a hundred years old and they're having a child. So miraculous births have always been something that have happened within the scripture. So these miraculous events that happen are for God's purpose at this time. We don't have to be able to fully understand how an angel got into Joseph's dream. We just have to know by scripture that it happened. And these are things that we believe because God's word say that it happened. We may not have all the answers to the hows and the why, but we know they happen nonetheless. So take encouragement in the fact that God has given you the faith to see these realities. That you're able to be here this morning and celebrate the virgin birth, having full faith that it actually happened. But look in verses 24 and 25. I love how the chapter concludes here. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph is continuing to act in accordance with what we know about him. He's a righteous and a compassionate man. He obeys both things that the angel tells him to do. He goes and he marries Mary and he names the child Jesus And with his obedience, he accomplished two things that radically changed his life. By obeying the angel, he married Mary. He, he officially took her on as his wife. And by doing this, he would be subjecting himself again to any kind of persecution that would come through marrying her. Remember, in the eyes of the town and maybe even his family, to marry this pregnant girl was to concede that he was the father, even though he wasn't. So he obeyed and married Mary in spite of what would be said or done to him. So to get fully married, and the text says that he knew her not until she was his wife. He was not intimate with her until Jesus was born. But secondly, by obeying the angel and naming Jesus, he was effectively adopting Jesus as his son. The responsibility to name the children in these days fell on the father. And so by Joseph naming Jesus, he was saying, this boy is mine. That he was going to be the one to raise and to care and to put a roof and food for this child. This, Joseph was going to care for this son. Jesus would learn Joseph's craft. But even more than all of this, being adopted by Joseph, Jesus was not only a biological descendant, of David through his mother, but he was now a legal descendant of Mary through his father. So he was a legal and a biological descendant now of King David as a result of being adopted by Joseph. And this is an incredible story, and in, in many ways it's the condensed version of the Christmas story. There's really a lot more mass of, of, of accounts over in, in Luke. So it's kind of a condensed version of it. In Luke's account, you see the shepherds in the fields and the angels and, and, and the heavens and, and all of that kind of thing. They go to Bethlehem, those shepherds do. They see that baby lying in a manger. That they're glorifying God. They're praising God because he had been born. But I want to close 
this morning with what really functions as bookends in the book of Matthew. In verse 23, we see that this name Emmanuel means God with us. In verse 23, we see the name, and, and, and it's almost as though, well, it is as though God has acted on human history here. He has, he has actually pressed His Son into time and space. So for the first time, God has these physical limitations. He has taken on flesh. He needs to eat. He needs to drink water. He, he rubs shoulders with us. He's, he's quite literally God with us. But turn quickly to the end of Matthew. So this is obviously in Matthew 1, the very beginning. He's going to be Emmanuel. He's going to be God with us. But in the very last chapter of Matthew, in the very last sentence of Matthew, we see something interesting. So in Matthew chapter 28, in the last sentence of that chapter, he says this, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So he would not stop being God with them. But what did he mean that he would always be with them? How could he be with them if he was leaving them? So the coming of Jesus was through a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. But the continual presence of Jesus would be with them through the Holy Spirit. So in the beginning of Matthew, God was with them physically. But now in the end of Matthew, God was going to be with them spiritually. For believers here this morning, God is with you. Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart and He's indwelt you. But if you don't know this Jesus, then He is not in you. But this is why He came to earth. This is why He came. He came so that you could have life. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save His people from their sins. And He has promised to be with us until we go to be with Him eternally. Or He comes back for us at His second advent. So this is the message to believe. This is the Christmas story in a nutshell. With the purpose of Jesus in a nutshell. That Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He was sent by God. And He came to do something very specific. He came to save His people from their sins. He came to dwell with them as God with them. And now, although He has gone and He has ascended into heaven, He still dwells with us through the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together.